1: Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're re-watching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly.
2: I'm Jesse Bayless, and I'm Richard Wells.
1: And today we're discussing Victory, aka Escape to Victory, released July 31st, 1981. It was written by Evan Jones and Yabo Yablonsky, based on a story by Yablonsky, Georgi Milisevich and Jeff Maguire, directed by John Huston and released by Paramount Pictures. Trigger warning, we will occasionally be using the S word to describe the game being played in this film because in the era it takes place, football and soccer were interchangeable names for the sport. The word soccer is an abbreviation of association football and finds its origins in Britain in the 1800s. It was introduced to differentiate from the other football, now commonly referred to as rugby, and served the same purpose in the U.S. opposite our other football, football. <laughs> it wasn't until later in the century when what we Americans call soccer gained popularity in the U.S. that the U.K. shifted away from the S-word entirely.
4: That's kind of funny because it's kind of like the uh, the English accent thing.
1: Right, how it was kind of taught to people so they didn't sound like Americans anymore. Well, that
4: the American accent is the original English accent. Right. And that the English accent was invented so that they wouldn't sound like Americans anymore.
1: Yeah. Wow. It was just a, a thing that they tricked rich people into paying for.
4: So all those old Shakespearean uh, plays when they put on the, the, the heavy English accent is wrong. They sounded like me.
1: <laughs> right, exactly.
2: <laughs> I, I like to think of them all sounding like Carl from Aqua Teen I was
1: this. thinking of that same voice Romeo, too, Romeo. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> In 1942, the city of Kiev, in the then-Soviet Union, was occupied by the Nazis. A local football club, the Dynamos, had been divided by the growing war, and more than half the team had escaped the country prior to the occupation. When Germany began to allow Ukrainian sports again, a team coalesced, called Club Rook, or movement, which was suspected by many former Dynamo players of operating in collaboration with the Germans. In response, they formed their own team, FC Start. On August 6th of 1942, before a crowd of 2,000 spectators, FC Start faced off against Flakelf, an openly German team, defeating them 5-1 and then returned to the field three days later for what has been historically dubbed the Deathmatch on August 9th. Again, FC Start finished in the lead 5-3. Eyewitness accounts and contemporaneous photos depict a friendly after-game atmosphere. A week later, on August 16th, FC Start played against Rook, and demolished them 8 nothing. Two days later, the team were arrested by the Gestapo. Turns out, embarrassed by the defeat, Rook trainer Georgi Shvetsov had reported the team as members of the NKVD, the Narodny Commissariat Venut... <laughs> some some not-so-great not so guys. Right. Venutranik Del, or People's Commissariat for Internal Affairs, the Interior Ministry of the Soviet Union.
2: Don't turn around. Uh oh. <laughs> to in town.
1: Uh oh. <laughs> Eight former Dynamo players were deported to the Soretz concentration camp. Three were later killed during a mass execution at the camp, though not as a direct revenge for the match. Prior to Escape from Victory, the story had previously been told in 1962's Two Half Times in Hell, which I think is a much better title.
4: I mean, it's it's not an exact version of the story it's not but it's 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 based
1: on that that urban legend of an event which has been confirmed in as much as there was a game against the germans but they weren't killed because of this game
4: when they were all russians right
1: right it was it was um the people of kiev playing against the german team Yeah. yeah victory or escape from victory was announced in july of 1979 with director brian hutton director of where eagles Dare and kelly's heroes attached As with those two titles, Victory was intended to star Clint Eastwood in the Stallone role, opposite Sir Roger Moore, and later Lloyd Bridges in the Michael Caine role.
4: Hmm. That seems like weird casting to me. I
1: think so too. I think he's too old to play that character.
4: Well, he's too old to play that character and I don't know, I just don't think of him as very athletic.
1: No, I don't think so either, but for some reason he plays boxers and stuff.
4: Yeah, not that he's unfit. I yeah. just I can't like
1: He's got a grandpa body and he, <laughs> and in the, all the movies we've seen him so far, he's like a professional boxer in the two monkey movies. Like
4: Yeah, which which makes more sense to me. It just like I, I, a soccer player's a different kind that's of fit. True. That's like true. they're they're lean, they're runners, you know. I mean, Michael
1: Caine doesn't fit the role either. No.
4: Yeah, but he's not an active soccer player that's anymore. True. He's like that's a true. coach level, right?
1: Eastwood seems to have left the project with director Hutton. John Huston took over as director, and Michael Caine and Stallone were quickly attached. The rest of the team are rounded out by mostly actual professional footballers, including the world-famous Pele, or Pele, as he seems to be pronounced overseas. I've always heard it Pele.
4: I always thought it was Pele.
1: Uh, And he also served as the film's soccer choreographer. He was the one who decided how each part of the match would go.
4: Well, he picked a cool ultimate move.
1: Yeah, well, that's like his thing, too, the bicycle kick. Stallone began extensive soccer training during the filming of Nighthawks from World Cup-winning goalkeeper Gordon Banks. Stallone assumed he could ignore Banks' advice, but after a quick shoulder dislocation, he started taking the training to heart. Stallone also reportedly refused a soccer double for the wide shots, but in the credits, it seems that Paul Cooper did exactly that. During the film's production, Stallone would also break a rib and a finger after inviting Pele not to take it easy on him in the goal. (laughs) That's what happens.
4: Eh, Stallone seems like he's susceptible to that macho stuff. Right, yeah.
1: (laughs) Stallone was not well-liked by his fellow cast members, as he would routinely disappear on his private jet every weekend and refuse to eat with the rest of them on set. The film shot entirely in Hungary for a budget of $12 million. The film was shut down mid-production due to the actor strike in 1980 with only five days left on their shooting schedule. Their 12-week contract with Hungary was running out, And if the strike went over 30 days, they would have to secure new locations for the last five days. The producers reached an interim agreement with SAG and were able to finish the shoot on time. We saw something similar with Windwalker earlier this season, where they were close to the end of the shoot and the SAG strike happened, Mm -hmm. but they were allowed to finish so they didn't have to scrap the film completely. Apparently $12 million was enough of a budget to land victory in Rolling Stone's Big Bucks, Big Losers article, but its box office was rescued by foreign markets where the film performed unexpectedly well, because they care about soccer in other places.
4: <laughs> Football.
1: <laughs> a remake was announced in March of 2019 with Jean-Colette Serra directing, from a script by Gavin O'Connor and Anthony Tambakis. We open on searchlights illuminating a barbed wire fence and tilt up to a German prison camp, Guards patrol with German shepherds. What? Sorry. <laughs> just did We just call them shepherds. Is that what you were going to say? That's not true. It's a different thing. Between panning searchlights, we see a man crawling as low to the ground as he can under cabins toward the fence. When he reaches the fence, he retrieves wire cutters from a back pocket and crawls through the first layer before drawing the attention of one of the guards. He doesn't have time to cut his way through the next few layers, and the searchlights find him. He is shot to death and collapses into the wires dangling like a marionette. The screen is suddenly filled with red fabric and the camera slowly pulls out of an enormous red cross flag on the roof of a vehicle. The red cross car follows another vehicle past anti-aircraft installations down a dirt road to the camp where we started the film. The prisoners are playing a game of soccer on a huge rectangle of dead grass. The cars park outside a building on the property and three men in another building prepare to meet them. They gather paperwork on Williams, the man who was shot to death in the fence last night. These three are British officers, and they walk to the gate where they're met by German officers and a Swiss doctor. The leader of the Brits here is Colonel Waldron, and a one-eyed Nazi character introduces a few others.
3: And Walden, you know Herr Rinder. a doctor from the Swiss Red Cross. Oberleutnant Strauss, Major von Steiner.
1: Von Steiner here is being played by the always wonderful Max von Sydow. The German introduces the other Brits.
3: Colonel Walton is the senior British officer. Major Rose, head of the Intelligence Committee. Wing Commander Sherlock, head of the Escape Committee. Nicht-twa?
1: I love that they can just admittedly have an escape committee and are yeah. being transparent about it with the German officers. The Swiss doctor has been invited to investigate the death of Williams and confirm that the camp is in compliance with the rules of the Geneva Convention. This threw me off because I was pretty sure the Geneva Convention was signed after the war in response to the atrocities committed therein, but looking into it, there are several Geneva Conventions, the first of which dates back to the 1860s, that all spell out the agreed-upon rules of war over time. As the Germans and the doctor move through the camp, we see Michael Caine as Colby, waving all the players off the field. One of the players is Hatch, played by Sylvester Stallone. They kick their ball past the German officers, and von Steiner alone stops to put a foot on it. Hatch steps up to the man.
0: At least can have my ball
1: back. Von Steiner rolls his foot back over the top of the ball, and then taps it three times into the air before kicking it to Colby several feet away. Hatch is not impressed and walks away. Colby introduces himself, and von Steiner seems to recognize the name. Colby explains how sophisticated their league is here in the camp. They have four divisions and they even divide up by nationality.
3: We even play internationals.
1: Internationals,
3: yeah. England, Ireland, Scotland, Wales. Oh, you call that international would be international if you played against Germany. <laughs> We'd murder you. Oh, 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 oh. Colby, John Colby.
1: Von Steiner finally recognizes the famous footballer for West Ham United and England. It's clear already that von Steiner is meant to be the sympathetic Nazi character of the film. That night, Hatch watches out a window as a car leaves the camp. We cut to a card game in progress. One of the players asks Colby what he was chatting with the Nazis about, and Colby admits von Steiner recognized him. Hatch has no idea who Colby is, and so wonders where von Steiner would recognize him from, until Rose explains that they were both footballers, Colby and von Steiner. Karl von Steiner played for Germany in 1938. Assuming this is 1942, the year of the historical death match, and von Sydow was about 51 during the shoot, he'd have to have been like 47 when he played for Germany. Another man in the bunks is trying to intercept British radio signals for news, and we cut to the following morning. Colby sits watching a game being played, and von Steiner joins him. Von Steiner informs him that the death of Williams has been ruled an accident, and then invites Colby to play a real game against a team from the Wehrmacht. Colby doesn't understand the point of such a game, but he's intrigued nonetheless.
0: What sort of team, are they any good?
3: I haven't chosen a team, it's just an idea. It's not an order, you can't
1: make us play. No, it's a challenge. Colby points out that his men are in no condition to play against another team at top form. They're starving and under-equipped. Von Steiner apologizes for even making the offer, but Colby stops him with a list of demands. He suggests that a solid team might come together if they're given special treatment, rations, and allowed to live together as a team.
3: I'd want uh, meat, fresh vegetables, eggs, beer. You talk to your colonel? No matter what he says, if you could supply us with all that stuff, you'd have a game
1: of football. Colby still suspects a trick and demands preemptively that all players be eligible for the prison team, not just officers. Later we see Hatch walk in on a gathering of the escape committee, They ask him to wait outside a moment so they can conduct their business. Sherlock dismisses a plan about pole vaulting over the fences, and they invite Hatch back in to speak with him. Hatch enlisted in Canada in '38, and he's had five escape attempts so far, so clearly he's supposed to be the Steve McQueen of the film. Right. He shares with them some of his observations about the guards' patrol patterns. Specifically, he calls out a pair of lazy guards named Hans and Anton, who he suspects wouldn't notice if someone went missing during shower time.
0: Why not? They wouldn't be sure. they think they'd miss cannon and leave it until roll call.
1: Hatch's plan is to sneak out of a ventilation shaft in the shower building and have someone cover for him during roll call to give him a few days head start. The British officers seem amused by this plan for a naked escape, but ask him for more details anyway, and we cut back to the soccer field. We see another game on the field, and it looks like Colby is just scouting players. A player named Sid Harmer scores a goal with his head, and Colby's impressed enough to invite him to the Double Rations Club. Meanwhile, Colonel Waldron watches the practice confused. He demands a face-to-face with Colby. Hatch asks to join the special team without proving himself, and Colby ignores him. Every time Colby signs another player, Hatch tries to piggyback on their accomplishment, and Colby keeps pointing him back to the game. Later, we see Colby meeting with the escape committee. They explain to him that they have blueprints of the stadium where the match is intended to take place. Colby doesn't see the point of it until the colonel explains that, point-blank, the team doesn't have to be good, because this is an escape plan. Do you guys recall the last time we saw prisoners pretending to participate in a competition organized by their guards, but actually planning an escape?
4: Oh, uh, is the bullfighting one. That's right. Uh, stir-crazy?
1: Stir-crazy is correct. Colby is offended at the suggestion of tainting this contest with an escape attempt, but they remind him as an officer it is his duty. Colby's bigger worry is risking the lives of the men he picked out with this plan. We cut to Von Steiner making the case for the game to his commanding officer. Another man in the room seems to find this game an excellent opportunity for propaganda. Or so I assume.
2: Yeah, we were watching this without the benefit of subtitles for these foreign language scenes, but I think the mood and the tone is pretty clear. Yeah,
1: he's he's desperately trying to sell them on this game, and another person in the room suddenly stands up and says, oh, this is this would be great propaganda for us if we just destroyed them on this field, so let's do it. Back on the field, Hatch continues to embarrass himself and Colby walks right past him to recruit another man. When the ball is kicked out of bounds, it comes to rest at the feet of a man who is quickly juggling it with his legs. Colby is impressed and asks where he learned this trick.
0: Where'd you learn to do that? When there was a boy in Trinidad, on the streets with the oranges.
1: This is Luis Fernandez played by the famous footballer Pele. Pele's from Brazil, but at this point in time, Brazil had not entered the war, so his nationality was adjusted for the story. Doesn't seem necessary, though, since this is a fictional story, yeah. and could have taken place whenever they felt like it. As the audition game resumes, Hatch gets more and more frustrated until he tackles a man to the ground. Colby's officially losing his patience with Hatch at this point. You cannot tackle like
3: that in soccer. I've been telling you that for a bloody oh, year. Go over the ball.
1: Hatch says if tackling isn't allowed, then he doesn't feel like playing the game anyway. Sometime later, Hatch is visited by a representative of the escape committee and informed that his naked shower plan has been approved. We see Colby being escorted out of the camp to meet with von Steiner, and the whole time he's walking out, Hatch is telling him how much he doesn't care about the football team. When he meets with von Steiner, Colby learns the parameters have changed a bit. Instead of playing against the Wehrmacht, Colby's team will be playing against the German national team. Colby is also invited to select from all prisoners of war in the occupied territories. The game will take place August 15th at Cologne Stadium, Paris.
4: I think it's weird that they have a list of of all prisoners of war who happen to also be soccer players. No, I mean, (laughs) I think
1: it's professional ones specifically, but they probably went and made a very intentional list of these people are the best ones and we can sell him on this game if we give him these people, even though they're all trash right now Mm because they've been in camps. Colby is introduced to Hauptmann Rainer Muller, the coach of the German team, and recognizes him as a player he's met on the field. Colby is less interested in this higher-profile game and asks what will happen if he refuses. Colby's handed a list of eligible players currently held in various camps across the occupied territories, but noticeably absent from the list are Eastern European prisoners, who the Germans barely considered people.
3: It's impossible. Officially, they
1: do not exist.
3: Germany does not recognize them as prisoners of war. They're in labor camps.
1: Colby demands they reconsider this position because in the name of fairness, he deserves a chance of winning and access to the best possible players anywhere. Back at the camp, a new cabin is being constructed for the team to live in. Waldron accuses Colby of collaboration if his intent is not to escape. The German propaganda machine has already spread news of this contest across the continent. We see Hatch meeting with the forger. The man opens a ceiling tile to bring down what looks like a modified lantern with a bunch of extra parts built onto it. He removes a lens from his glasses to serve as the lens of the camera and takes Hatch's photo in front of a hanging blanket and a nice suit and tie.
4: I'm I'm kind of baffled as to how these guys have all this stuff. Like, how do you have blueprints of the stadium? How do you have this, like, makeshift camera?
1: Yeah. I mean, the camera thing, I believe, because those people were very inventive with the way they put things together, and they go into a lot of that stuff. I remember in The Great Escape, we see the forger do some pretty incredible things, and I think they also have a camera in that movie.
2: Yeah, um, uh, James Garner... Uh, manipulates a guard into bringing him a lot of the materials Oh, that they okay. Need. So
1: they're getting it smuggled in.
2: Yeah. I mean,
4: they'd have to for a lot of this stuff that you see that they have because basically what? They got the clothes on their backs and they got a soccer ball. That's all they got. So yeah. I just can't imagine where you'd get fancy paper and any sort of supplies to do any of this yeah, stuff. Yeah, and
1: the film strips yeah. and everything.
2: Yeah, in, in The Great Escape when they're trying to make like clothes for them to escape in, you know, they're taking like bed sheets and curtains and modifying them to look like modern trend Mm. in fashion and things like that
1: it turns out the tailor was only necessary to costume hatch for the one second it would take to capture this photograph and he's immediately pulling off the suit the forger seems to be making either an id or a passport for hatch we'll find out later it's a passport and hatch intends to pose as a french electrician he will also be forging discharge papers for military service citing a death in the family When he steps back outside, Hatch notices that the guards aren't on their usual patrol, and Waldron confirms that Anton and Hans have been reassigned to guard Colby's team. Hatch is furious that weeks of work have been thrown out because of this dumb game that Colby won't let him play.
0: Those are my guards. I needed them. In two or three weeks, I was out of here. Oh, that's bad right. Just between ourselves, Hatch. I never thought it was a very good plan anyway.
1: Colby leads the team into their new fancy quarters. Hatch just sneaks in behind them with a duffel bag like Colby isn't going to notice.
0: What do you think you're doing? I decided to join the team.
1: huh? Hatch says that he's going to be the team's trainer, and again Colby shows him the door. Hatch explains about the guards being reassigned, and Colby tells him he can't join the team because he knows that Hatch will try to escape and probably be killed. You get yourself shot.
0: That's my
1: choice, isn't it? Colby finally relents. A truck with a caged bed arrives, and players from all over Europe empty into the camp. Colby seems to recognize them all on sight. The men are quickly stuffing themselves with the double rations that Colby negotiated. We get a montage of the men in training and trying on their new equipment. Everything Hatch does in the background seems redundant because he's mostly repeating what Colby says, but with less enthusiasm and less convincingly. It might just be a contrast of Michael Caine and Sylvester Stallone's acting abilities, though. (laughs) The men take to the practice field with their new bright red uniforms and are met with mocking applause and whistles from their fellow prisoners. We get a taste of the main theme of the film, and it's a surprisingly lazy reworking of The Great Escape theme. Here's Victory's theme. And then here's The Great Escapes.
4: Is that, is that what that song is originally from?
1: Yeah. The men transition from general aerobics to actual footwork with balls on the field. Pele does one of his patented bicycle kicks. We cut back to the cabin where Colby is lecturing the men on the importance of passing the ball, but he's interrupted by Pele who assures him that you can give him the ball anywhere on this field and he will zigzag to a successful goal no problem. Colby's called out for another chat with Waldron. Turns out the trucks have arrived with the Eastern European prisoners from the labor camps. Waldron demands an explanation, and Colby says he requested them specifically. I insisted on having them.
3: You insisted? They're all great players.
1: They were. Waldron is furious because these men were clearly sent here to drag the team down and embarrass them at this propaganda game. He also reports that when news of the game reached Europe, it was assumed a lie because British officers should know better than to risk this contest. Hatch is still on board with Colby's plan and suggests that they scrub up the men and get them fresh clothes immediately. The cabin is silent as the new teammates struggle to eat even small spoonfuls of fruit. Colby takes full responsibility for inviting the men here and gives the rest of the team the opportunity to quit if they don't believe they can get the men in playing shape. Everyone is still fully on board to play. The next day during practice, Hatch capably blocks a shot with his hands, and Colby points out that if he's so used to American football, maybe goalie is the right position for him. Pele, as Luis, is invited to keep firing on him, and Hatch does a decent job keeping up until Luis gets close and fakes him out. Hatch gets a mouthful of dirt, and Luis scores a goal. I thought you are my friend.
0: I am your friend. You know, Hatch, to be honest with you. You don't kick well. You don't dribble well but you could be a good goalkeeper keep trying he's right you're
3: not bad
4: i think that's silly like you're playing this game that means so much and you're gonna pick a dude that's never played before yeah he doesn't know the goalie? rules he doesn't yeah. care
1: about it he's been mocking the game the whole time you've been practicing
4: i feel like anybody who's played before is going to be a better goalie. right than i think him.
1: they have a better goalie later and then they take him out of the game <laughs> Later that day, Hatch goes to collect his passport from the forger and learns that the colonel has collected them first. When Hatch collects his documents, the escape team ask if he wouldn't mind returning the favor a bit. They ask him to contact the resistance in Paris to arrange for the escape of the football team. Hatch is pissed off to find that his plan has been interrupted yet again. He's instructed not to tell Colby ahead of time. We cut to the showers, and in a dark corner of the building, Hatch climbs up the pipes on the wall and starts to work the face off of a vent near the ceiling.
2: He didn't do it naked, though. No, No. very disappointing.
4: (laughs) He was, like, squatting in the rafters. There would have been some, you know, sights to see there.
1: (laughs) Yeah, really upset about it. The men below him wish him luck, which they might not have done, if he were just teabagging them from the rafters. (laughs) As they watch him climb out the window and into the night, although he doesn't climb out the window here. He's right next to it, and he gets the face off of it. A German soldier orders the men out of the showers, but just as Hatch suspected, they have not kept a solid count, and Hatch hasn't gotten completely out of the building, so he waits in the rafters till nightfall. At roll call that night, Hatch's friends bring a terrible dummy in his place, <laughs> but somehow from a distance it tricks the Germans.
4: But again, I mean, like, okay, it's 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 not amazing likeness, but... For somebody having constructed this in mm-hmm. a, like a prison camp, no, it's, it's, it's amazing. A, it's vaguely impressive.
1: <laughs> it does look like a Roblox version of the character. Yeah.
4: <laughs> but like where would you have gotten any of those materials? I feel like I, I couldn't even construct that good of a thing from all the stuff in our house, let yeah. alone a prisoner camp. Well, it's
2: just papier-mâché. Papier. Papier. <laughs> Papier. Make it sound
1: like a barrel water. mache
4: Sorry, wrong character. <laughs>
1: In the team bunks, Pele plays harmonica in the dark. Guards patrol the fence, much like in our cold open, and we cut to Hatch climbing the roof of the shower building. The fencing around the camp actually runs over the roof of the building, but Hatch makes quick work of it with his wire cutters and slides underneath. We see him crawling through the dark, and he keeps mostly out of searchlights, not completely. Yeah. He's kicking up a lot of dust too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if he's, I was he's a, being pretty loud, I think.
2: If I was a searchlight and I came across a big plume of dust, I'd be like, like Check that out. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Another dust cloud. Nothing to worry about.
2: It looks like a bunny. No, you're not doing clouds right.
1: <laughs> Hatch moves toward a fancy car parked outside one of the largest buildings in the camp, just before a man and woman leave together. These are probably the same man and woman he was watching out the mm-hmm. window earlier, so he knows what time they leave every night. As the car starts to pull away from the building, Hatch clings to the passenger side exterior and manages to squeak through the checkpoint at the edge of camp.
4: I feel like that is risky. Like, he's just sitting on the running board. Yeah, and thing. the dude
1: walks around the car, yeah, but he just doesn't see him because he's in shadow. It.
4: That's crazy. Like, I feel like it, you'd be under the thing, like, holding on underneath. Right,
1: the Cape Fear moment.
2: Sideshow <laughs> <Such a> Bob. <laughs> <laughs> what? Such a bob.
1: On yeah, he does it care. in the same episode, in the Cape Fear episode later hatch moves through a train station and is stopped briefly by a nazi soldier but fakes being french well enough to board a train and escape i
2: I like his way of blending in where he offers to help the lady with her
1: bags so they look like they're part of the same group yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah. it's pretty smart we see a mini training montage of the team practicing and then it's back to hatch as he navigates his way to rue de jourdain where he is to meet the resistance Hatch heads to a nearby bar and as the bartender tops off his drink he sketches a letter V on the table which the bartender notices and erases with a bar rag. Sometime later, Hatch is sitting in an apartment with members of the Resistance who are contemplating the best way to reach the team and allow for their escape. One of them brings up how conveniently the sewer system connects to the stadium. With the beginnings of a plan in place, the men are all rushed out of the apartment and Hatch is left alone with a young woman, Renee, who prepares a meal for him. Hatch flirts with her a lot and she seems standoffish until she explains that she doesn't like to meet people who are operating in the war because it hurts too much to lose them
2: i liked aspects of stolen's performance in this scene mostly because he was acting with a coffee cup pressed to his face yeah <laughs> it, it was just something funny about the image of him like leaning into this cup while he was talking and flirting with her <laughs> like like he was cheek to cheek with her yeah. but instead of the coffee cup it's, i mourn for
3: them i don't want to mourn for you
0: Well, you're safe with me, Renee. How? Well, I'm uh, an orphan, a bastard. I have no parents, no money, I'm not married. No children, I don't even have a pet. And anything I might say in my sleep, to the
1: contrary, can't be held against me. So it's like, at the same time he's saying, don't worry about me too much, he's also saying... I'm available, I don't have any kids or any pets, and also if we fuck later and I say something in my sleep, you could just ignore all of that.
4: Wait, but like, I I thought that that was actually a kind of a sweet thing to say in the moment, you, you know, to try to calm her, and, yeah. then, and then basically say, but I also am probably totally lying right now. Yeah,
1: the part at like, the why end would is the part you where it says in? like, I, I might also have a wife and several children, yeah. but <laughs> you could just ignore what I say when I'm asleep. Hatch learns in their conversation that Renee's husband was killed in the war. He asks if she lives with anyone, and she mentions a Francois. She realizes how late it is and offers to move Francois to another room so Hatch can get some sleep.
0: Wait, uh, you don't have to get Francois up. Uh, I don't want to cause any trouble. I can sleep here on the couch.
1: But then she comes out of the room carrying Francois, and we see that it is her young child. And he's like, oh yeah, move that fucking kid. I don't care.
2: (laughs) I thought for sure it was going to be a dog. Yeah. I was like, oh, it's going to be like a
1: dog on the bed or something. Sometime later, the Germans have finally realized that a papier-mâché head has been attending roll call as Hatch for probably several days now. <laughs> Herr Commandant is called over to observe the evidence of the scheme, and it's all the men can do to keep from laughing.
4: But it's a it's an amusing reveal, though, because it's it's kind of a wide shot with the, the officers in front and the group in the back, and yeah. the head just
1: falls f- off. <laughs> falls off. <laughs> <laughs> They're just cracking up. Even Colonel Waldron has to bury his face in his hands to avoid laughing. von steiner pulls colby into his office to explain how embarrassing this is for him he's furious that colby's team aided in hatch's escape and he makes colby promise that there will be no further attempts presumably threatening to shut down the game otherwise and i like that colby's like oh scouts honor like i promised not to escape your prison camp you idiot of course i'm going to (laughs) keep this promise to a nazi just so i can you know save face
4: play a game that i don't really even want to play in the first place yeah
1: I mean, he does, but it seems like not a lot of other people care. Back in Paris, Hatch and his new friends explore the sewers for a connection to the stadium. They locate a hollow point point in a brick wall and then take a pickaxe to it to carve an entrance. They seem to have a path straight through to the visitor's dressing room. Unfortunately, this part of the plan needs to be communicated with the team, and the only way to do that covertly is for Hatch to get recaptured and sent back to camp.
2: So this is exactly what happens in the
1: Great Escape. Right, he goes. He yeah. he has to get out and then come back so that mm-hmm. he can bring information back.
4: But that like that kind of always needed to be the plan. Like I think Hatch is an idiot for thinking that his part in this would end once he figured out like a way well, for them to escape. Somehow they're right? communicating
1: with the outside though because yeah. these resistance people knew to meet him in Paris, so they're able to get messages out. I don't know why they can't get messages back.
4: I don't know that they did though. Because essentially
1: Or they just knew they just know they that there's a
4: resistance and they know like the secret code word to get in.
1: Okay. Hatch obviously doesn't want to do this and worries aloud that he might be sent to a different camp than the one he escaped. Alright, suppose I get captured. And
0: then they send me to the wrong prisoner camp. What what about that? No, 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 what about that?
1: The Germans
3: ridiculed the same place again to show the other prisoners that you are not a success.
0: Got all the answers don't you
3: yes
1: they inform him that he must be on his way tomorrow tomorrow yes tomorrow this friggin' soccer game
2: <laughs> I love this. this game is ruining my life
1: <laughs> yeah because he won't need the passport anymore he leaves it with renee in case she has any use for it and they kiss goodbye i feel like he probably could use that passport if this whole plane is supposed to end with yeah. him escaping again maybe keep the passport they're good right, for but, eight years but, right <laughs>
4: <laughs> but he's going to be captured again they're gonna search him like he can't hang on to it
1: well yeah that's true i guess at the, at the prison he couldn't bring it
2: He put it in Just, his prison wallet
1: yeah that's true uh. we cut to hatch arriving at the camp and as he's loaded into a shed for solitary confinement he holds his hands above his head and flaps them like wings on a helmet intelligence expert rose recognizes the gesture from roman mythology
3: So, our Hatch knows his mythology. What does it mean? Mercury. Messenger of the gods. No flies on Rosie. (laughs) News, eh? How do we find out what it is?
1: Colby is finally informed of the explanation behind Hatch's reappearance. Colby was apparently still under the impression that the escape plan had been abandoned. Waldron tells Colby that he has to get whatever message Hatch has before the game or risk a court-martial after the war. Waldron assumes that Colby can just order him out of solitary by adding him back to the team, but it won't be so easy. Colby reports to Von Steiner that on top of being their trainer, Hatch is also the team's goalkeeper because this morning their goalie broke his arm. Von Steiner approves Hatch's release on the condition that a camp doctor verifies the injury. Then we cut to the most difficult scene in the film back in the team cabin the current goalkeeper tony lewis is asked to lay his arm across a bed frame so that colby can step on it to break his arm and remove him from the team
2: not only remove him from the
1: team but remove him from, from escape escape yeah, yeah. Right? It's, a, it's an insane sacrifice and they,
4: I don't, it doesn't even seem like they would have arranged this with him ahead of time i think he just went in there and be like oh yeah by the way uh i gotta break your arm and you're not part of this anymore.
1: yeah but he was volunteering potentially permanent damage to his body so that someone else can escape without him.
4: And in theory, because they all are, he was a professional soccer player. Yeah, you
1: would think he was a goalie, and yeah, you would think that it's like... You're
4: breaking his arm, this is his livelihood yeah. if he ever gets out.
1: And he and the, the most depressing thought for him isn't, I don't get to escape, or this could cost me my career. It's that I don't even get to see the game now. That's the first thing he says. That's what he's disappointed about. (laughs) We cut right to the team en route to the game. A bus drops them off beside a train station in Paris. A team of German officers inspect the dressing rooms of the teams to assure that there are no paths of escape. On the way to the game, Hatch confesses unnecessarily that he doesn't know the rules of the game and asks where to stand for a corner kick, and Colby just laughs at him. The team arrives at MTK Stadium in Budapest, Hungary, playing the part of Cologne Stadium in Paris, and is escorted to the visitors' dressing rooms. Colby inspects the team bath and finally tells Hatch where to take a corner kick from.
4: Is it the corner? I assume it's the corner. It turns
1: out it's the corner. (laughs) We cut to a group of resistance agents ducking into the sewers with a bunch of pickaxes and shovels. It seems like they could have done some of this earlier. We didn't just see a bunch of Nazis checking the sewers. (laughs) It seems like you could have been down here yesterday, maybe. As the German officials take their seats before the game, von Steiner is warned that the Allied team must not win. Yeah. Or at least I think that's what's being said. <laughs>
2: I, I'm pretty sure that's the the overall message of this scene.
1: But we never get a scene of him going to Colby and saying, by the way, you need to lose this game or well, there's going to be consequences. I know that's not von Steiner's thing either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I felt like in, in the historical game that this is based on, the team were informed that they should not win, and they won anyway, to just embarrass the Germans. A commentator begins to describe the match, and even though he speaks with an English accent, he has Nazi insignia on the lapels of his coat. The Germans have selected a neutral ref for the game. Just before the match begins, Rene and Francois show up on the sidelines, and she sends in her son with a bouquet of flowers and a message that the plan is on for halftime. Do they not know when this was going to happen? Uh, I guess.
4: I mean, I... The, the interesting thing is, like, they, they started to plan this when he was there. And then they're like, oh, by the way, you got to go back.
1: Go back uh, immediately.
4: Immediately. And, and, and they're off going to go plan the rest of this. I'm like, I feel like you should figure out a few more details before you send the guy who's going to tell them everything back. <laughs>
1: yeah. And I feel like it wasn't super necessary to send him back if a guy was going to just pop up in the middle of the dressing room and say, hey, we're leaving now. Like, yeah. If they knew that there was an escape anyways. plan. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
4: Yeah, probably. Or if he could just send a kid out on the field and be like, by the way, you're escaping your Exactly.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Hatch blocks a shot on the goal and responds with a corner kick, but moments later, Germany scores the first goal of the match. Pele, as Luis, is fouled to the ground, but the ref is refusing to call fouls against the Germans, probably because he's been informed that if he does, he will be shot. Germany scores a second goal. An allied player is injured to the point of being carted off the field, and Waldron, Rose, and Sherlock look worried. It's neat that they got to go. They're not part of the (laughs) team, but they were invited for some reason. The ref does not hesitate to call penalties against the Allied team, and the Germans quickly win a penalty kick. I'm no athlete, but it doesn't look like a difficult shot to block, and Hatch whiffs it, so the Germans are up 3-0. Very quickly, Hatch is lured out of the goal again, and the score is 4-0. Colby is furious with him for letting the Germans repeatedly draw him off the line. Moments later, Pele is injured and walked off the field. We finally start to see some cohesive play from the Allied team, and the non-Germans in the audience are excited to see it. Hatch finally blocks a shot and is kicked hard to the ground, but the team doesn't wait for him to recover, and the Allies quickly respond with their first point of the game.
2: Whenever the Germans would score a goal, the crowd stayed silent, so the radio announcer had a recording of applause that he was playing. <laughs> that he would play yeah. into the microphone.
1: And sometimes even, like... Wow, the crowd is really loving this game after he <laughs> Tur- plays the sand. Turn it up more. <laughs> the German officials on the sidelines are clearly furious to go into halftime on this note. They were hoping for a flawless victory. The team moves into the dressing room to celebrate their point, and Colby leans over the bath for a moment when bubbles start rising from the corner of the tub. Suddenly, the tub collapses out of the floor, and a ladder emerges from a hole in the tub, and a guy climbs up out of it, waving them into the hole.
4: Well, yeah, because, like, this this bath uh you know it's a big square tile bath um i think i think he's coming out of like a big drain hole but Mm -hmm. um it was full of water and so the guy coming through is just totally soaked because it just got gushed on by a very large bath of water
2: yeah it was cool to watch though that the floor collapse and just all that water rush out all at once yeah
1: All of the team, aside from Hatch and Colby, were unaware of the escape plan, and Hatch immediately is like, Colby goes down first, I'll go behind everybody, we're going to get out of here. Many of them quickly voice objections, which honestly seems unrealistic to me. I cannot fathom a prisoner of war choosing to attempt winning a rigged game over a guaranteed escape. Once the team are underground, they're more vocal in their objections, and eventually they convince Colby that they have a shot at this, and he's suddenly adamant that they return to the field.
4: Well, I, I mean, I don't think it's totally unrealistic because I think that they know themselves that they're making a sacrifice. If they win, they're doing this to make a sacrifice for the morale of the entire war.
1: Yeah. But I think that it still helps un- the morale if they escaped in the middle of the game. Yeah.
4: <laughs> yeah, I guess that too. But I just think that, you know, just def- def- the actual act of defeating sure. Germany was important.
1: Do you remember the last time that we saw small groups of people? Uh, basically deciding what would happen at the end of the war, in a, in a sort of microcosm. Yes, Richard, what do you got?
2: Uh, blanking on the
1: movie. <laughs> you said yes though.
2: I know, but it's because Donald Sutherland and
1: oh god, what was the name of that movie? Eye of the Needle. Eye of the Needle.
4: Oh, that one. Yeah. Mm. It's
1: a smaller group of people. Yeah, much a smaller. Game. <laughs> Three people, to be exact. <laughs>
2: Well, two, two and one, really? one neutral well, representative. Yeah, two and a corpse. <laughs> I was talking about the child.
1: I was talking about the, the father He's <laughs> a, a member of the team. He's just an early casualty of the war.
4: There was a lighthouse guy, too. Another corpse. Not helping.
1: Another neutral. <laughs> Hatch thinks they're all crazy, but when it's only him leaving, Colby makes the worst argument for staying he possibly could.
3: Hatch, if you go, we've all got to go with you. Hatch. We can't go back without a goalie.
1: And for some reason, this convinces Hatch to stay instead of saving all their lives by leaving now. Pele offers his big line for the film.
0: Hatch, if we run now, we lose more than a game.
1: I've always been a terrible sportsman, but this seems like the opposite of true. Hatch could easily have responded with, if we leave now, we win more than a game. They would all gain instant freedom, and it would embarrass the Germans that they let the team escape during this highly publicized match. There's no way the Germans would consider it effective propaganda to admit to the world that the prisoners staged a breakout yeah. live yeah. while this is like being reported everywhere. The second half of the game begins, and Waldron and Rose are livid to see the allied team retaking the field. Renee is also confused. <laughs> She's like, uh, you got my flowers, right? And she's like, what
2: the hell did you say to him, kid? <laughs> she just starts smacking her son. Oh, no.
1: <laughs> I'm sure all the resistance fighters who risked their lives breaking in here this morning are equally furious.
2: Yeah. They're going to find the hole.
1: Yeah, it, it leads right back to my apartment. We didn't think this through. According to the commentators, the Allied team are playing more desperately in the second half, and they quickly score a second goal, closing in on the Germans 4-2. to Hatch's goalkeeping has improved a lot somehow, and they're <laughs> suddenly up to 4-3. They've nearly tied it up.
3: A marvelous game. We anticipated it, and so far it's a sizzler. The Germans are in top form.
1: Finally, the game is tied up with a fourth goal from the Allies, and the ref doesn't know what to do, so he just randomly disallows the fourth goal without much explanation. The crowd doesn't appreciate it, and the injured Pele on the sidelines demands to be put back in. Colby puts up a half-hearted fight because he's desperate for the help.
0: I want to play. You can't play like that. I feel good. I feel better. I
3: must play. Ref, he's coming back on.
1: (laughs) As he takes to the field, he is constantly gripping his chest, and the German players are just nonstop punching him in the ribs, but the ref does nothing about it. Pele gets it close to the goal, and we get a shot of von Steiner realizing what's about to happen. Colby sets him up, and Pele smashes it into the goal with a beautiful slow-mo bicycle kick, and the crowd goes nuts. For some reason, the ref doesn't disallow this point. (laughs) I figured he was just going to keep doing that for the rest of the game. Yeah. We get to see the point over and over in replays, and it's an inarguably beautiful kick, to the point that even von Steiner stands up to applaud the move, much to the dismay of his fellow Nazi officers. I feel like he's definitely getting shot after this. Yeah. (laughs) The crowd starts chanting victory in support of the Allies, and the Germans don't know what to do about it. Germany is granted a penalty kick in the last minute of the game, and it's up to Hatch to maintain the tie he catches the ball and then kicks it into the field which i think means that someone could just come back and score but everyone's celebrating like the game is no. instantly over i think
4: i think the time is already up so maybe it, I, it was it was tied or not tied it was
1: yeah it was tied it was with tied. a minute left yeah. it
4: was tied with a minute left and yeah. so but the penalty allowed him to have the, the the one more shot even though the time was up
1: right that makes sense this whole penalty kick moment was added to a piece alone, who demanded that as the film's biggest star he should score the winning kick. He thought he was the biggest star in this movie. I mean, I guess at the time he was pretty big, but Michael Caine seems bigger. I don't know.
4: Right, but also, is uh, the biggest football star, the biggest yeah, soccer yeah. star. Like, it l- makes sense that he scored the winning kick.
1: <laughs> and while it's not unheard of, it's so unlikely that a goalie would score the winning kick that he had to be talked down to blocking a penalty kick and eventually relented. I also think it's kind of crazy that in a fictional telling of the story that the Allied forces couldn't have just won the game.
4: I was thinking that. I was confused because as I was watching, I was like, well, maybe I... Maybe I missed, the, counted the score. No, it was 4-4 yeah. four four at the I end. Was, I was hoping that, because it's, you know, everyone was so excited, and I get that a tie isn't a loss, but everyone's so excited about it that right. I'm like, oh, I must have miscounted. They must have just won. Yeah,
1: and in the historical games, they did win by multiple points right. both times. <laughs> yeah, I,
2: I kept rewinding until I, I saw the scoreboard, like, with them one point behind when right. it was 4-3, and then I was, like, really focused. <laughs> like, it's like I I missed I missed something, and I don't know where it was that yeah. I missed it.
1: But apparently this victory had to be a tie. I understand that the randomly disallowed point means unofficially they won, but the score at the end of the game is 4-4, and the men celebrate like that was worth foregoing freedom. Like they've they've lost their chance to escape, and they're just happy that they won 4-4. With, they tied. You yeah. tied them. Yeah. <laughs> the crowd is so excited by this outcome that they knock over the wall around the field and storm the team. Nazi soldiers struggle to hold them back. A massive swarm of people hold the Nazi officers in their seats, while the fans on the field smuggle the team out of the stadium, shielding them in their own coats to freedom.
2: Which is going to work for some of them, but
1: not (laughs) Not, for others.
4: Not for one
2: of them. (laughs) I was like, oh, this is a plan, but not going to
1: be a guarantee. Von Steiner can't mask his approval at the outcome as the people rush out of the stadium onto the street and the picture fades to blue. If you'll recall, the film started with an extreme close-up of the Red Cross flag filling the screen with red, and then when we got to the game, the screen was white as we slowly pulled out of a swastika flag, so this blue completes the red-white-blue pattern. But it's not a flag. It just faded to blue mm-hmm. randomly.
4: I always wondered, like, I mean, if you're a Nazi and you think you're the good guy, do you, do you really think you're a good guy when your colors are red and black?
1: <laughs> like, I don't know. I mean, they're skulls all over their uniforms. Yeah, mean like,
4: like there's so many clues here that you're not the that's, good guy, right?
1: <laughs> that's, that's where that whole sketch comes from, though, too, yeah. where they're like, Hans, I've just noticed something. These communists are all cowards. <laughs> have you looked at our caps recently?
2: Our caps?
3: The badges on our caps. H- have you looked at them? What? No. A bit? <laughs> They've got skulls on them. <laughs> Have you noticed that our caps have actually got little pictures of skulls on them? I
2: I don't, so... Hands. Are we the baddies?
4: (laughs) What's that sketch from?
1: Mitchell and Webb. Each character gets a short clip replay as their credits are displayed and the film has ended. In the original draft, the game is arranged with the understanding that if the prisoners throw the match, they will be released. So if they lose on purpose they get their freedom, but they decide to win the game anyway and are consequently executed. That's the way the first draft ended.
4: Wow.
2: Well, again, I mean, I didn't want to have spoiler alerts, but that's more in line with also with The Great Escape.
1: Yeah, it's also more in line with what actually happened because some of these players were executed in prison camps after they won these games against the Germans.
2: I mean,
4: honestly, that would have been a much more impactful movie. I think so too,
1: yeah. I absolutely I,
4: I I felt like overall this movie was kind of meh. Like, I, you know, it wasn't it wasn't bad in terms of the performance or the acting or the, or the filming. I think Stallone's performance is I mean, awful, though. Stallone is always just Stallone. It's but just everyone else felt like a
1: person in a war movie, and Stallone is just like a cartoon, like, wobbling through That's every That's just shot. what Stallone is, though. Yeah.
4: So, like, I don't have any problem with the, with the movie as is, but I'm just like, I never had a doubt in my mind that all of these guys would both, like, win what they needed to win and escape at some point. Like I like, right. I'm like, everyone's going to be fine at the end of this movie. And, it's, yeah. and, and and I never had a doubt of that. Yeah. Like if that had, if that was the v- version I saw, I'd been like, Holy crap.
1: Yeah. I still think this is for me, a thumbs down just because I mean, I don't care about soccer slash football. Um, and I, I don't, I didn't really care about these characters the way that they were set up in the film. I, I feel like these actors didn't care about this movie. <laughs> I just think there could have been a, there, there could have been more to it it's it's long for a movie that really doesn't have solid character subplots
2: well there's a lot of training montages
1: yeah and I, I know we have to do that but these people were all professional soccer players beforehand so they're not getting that much better at soccer over the course of these montages
4: I don't know if I would give it a thumbs down it's it's not something that I like but I don't you know, I don't hate it.
1: I don't hate it. I just, this is the kind of movie that I would never recommend to anybody. I would say you can skip this one comfortably and you wouldn't be missing anything because it's just a very low rent version of The Great Escape.
4: Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm still, I, still, I guess I would still give it a thumbs up because I, I don't think it's bad. I think that there's probably people in the world that'd be like, yeah, that's probably your kind of movie.
1: I think not Americans. <laughs> but I, I think that, people in soccer you don't know any non-americans
4: yeah exactly
1: (laughs) i make it a point what that's not true we have lots of non-american friends in our discord who don't like me saying soccer (laughs) (laughs) so much
4: so much so that you had to put a disclaimer on this episode
1: exactly
2: (laughs) um i'm giving it a thumbs up uh i i actually didn't mind this movie at all i i i was perfectly fine with it from start to beginning start to beginning start <laughs> yeah to that's what i would say <laughs> um i i wasn't overwhelmed by emotion um yeah. and i think uh, you know i kind of understood i think i understood a little bit better in my own mind of why they chose to stay s- instead of escaping it was a matter of pride and had that conversation with my niece about this and she flipped out she goes no escape what are you doing yeah, escape.
1: yeah. i think i think- the pride is is a terrible thing when it tricks yeah. people into dying at the hands of the Nazis instead of embarrassing them for a guaranteed escape.
2: Yeah, uh, yeah, because they get lucky in the end with the storming of the field.
1: Right. Uh, but
2: still, I, you know it's it's like a it's like a feel good movie all, overall. Sure. Um, but yeah, Stallone was a very weak aspect of it, um especially when they're trying to shoehorn some kind of love story uh
1: yeah that that was very half-assed that whole part and it's like he's barely flirting with her at all and then they're immediately just like you can tell they're going to get married after the war yeah what happened between these two characters that we didn't see
2: he was the one that made it that's it i guess
1: everyone else i've expressed even the slightest interest in died in the war yeah congratulations it's illegal for me to marry my son
2: (laughs) my kiss is literally the kiss of death
1: (laughs) Uh, Where's this going? Letterboxd, do we know? Richard.
2: Uh, I have it at 43. All right. uh, Which puts it uh, below Nighthawks. So it's like right below another Stallone. (laughs) Uh, But above SOB. All right.
4: I have it at 53. It is below the Seawolves and above Fort Apache, the Bronx. And that's out of, how many is that out of now? 102. 102 guys we've watched 102 movies this From 1981, year
1: 1981, yeah mm-hmm. i have it in 76th uh, it's just under savage harvest and just above earthbound wow that's where i put that one
4: man you I, really didn't like this one yeah
1: i don't i don't care about this movie i none of the characters matter and and stallone makes the whole thing a joke because he doesn't feel like a real person and specifically, like, basically any scene where he's hanging out with the team, he just feels like such the odd man out weirdo. It's like everyone's trying desperately to ignore him because they just hate him. Yeah. And I guess the actors did. But it's also <laughs> weird because it's just like. So maybe the such... other
4: actors aren't good actors because they couldn't even hide their hatred of Stallone. <laughs> maybe. Or maybe
1: they wanted him to seem annoyed.
2: Or maybe that's why Stallone did it. I mean, it was
4: weird to put him in this movie at all anyways. Like, but Steve just McQueen to...
1: isn't hated by the other people at The Great Escape camp they're all rooting for him every time he gets out
2: no no but i mean stallone did all these things to piss off them so they would have this animosity yeah but i
1: don't think it helps the movie (laughs) i think yeah maybe he thought he was doing some like character work where he was like this is great then they're all gonna hate me the way that they're supposed to and the director's like what they're not supposed to hate you (laughs) the audience wants to like people but you're annoying in this movie i
4: don't even know why they put an american in here it doesn't even make sense
1: so they could sell it in america
4: Mm. yeah i guess
1: we're not gonna watch a movie with no americans in it
4: that is true you hate hate foreign people so (laughs) about me specifically
1: (laughs) they cared a lot what i thought back in 1981 (laughs) two years before i even premiered
2: (laughs) (laughs) and i was already a drag on the box office at this point
1: that's true our director here was John Houston. We've seen his work so far as the director of Wise Blood and Phobia. He also starred in The Visitor Forest last season. He's the director of The Maltese Falcon, Treasure of the Sierra Madre, Key Largo, The Asphalt Jungle African Queen, The Gregory Peck Moby Dick, Night at the Iguana, Life and Times of Judge Roy Bean and The Man Who Would Be King. He's also Buck Loner in Myra Breckenridge, Grizzly Adams in The Life and Times of Judge Roy Bean, The Lawgiver in Battle for the Planet of the Apes, John Hay in The Wind and the Lion, the voice of Gandalf in the Rankin-Bass Lord of the Rings and lead Jake Hannaford in Orson Welles' direct-to-Netflix feature The Other Side of the Wind. He's probably best known, though, as Noah Cross in Chinatown, a performance parodied by Ned Beatty as the mayor in Rango. Houston's voice and mannerisms were also an inspiration for Daniel day lewiss performance of Daniel Plainview in There Will Be Blood. So far, we've seen his daughter Angelica in The Postman Always Rings Twice writer and story came from yabo yablonski he previously wrote the manipulator with mickey rourke and jaguar lives another joe lewis martial arts film but with christopher lee as the villain that sounds fun yeah because his script ended with the team being executed he was so disgusted by the changes in the final film that he literally contemplated suicide for a time oh no writer evan jones previously wrote the damned and funeral in berlin the story came from georgie Milisevich. He later writes Runaway Train with John Voight and Eric Roberts. Another story credit for Jeff Maguire, who wrote In the Line of Fire, Timeline, and The Gridiron Gang. Music here came from Bill Conti. He's a regular collaborator of Stallone's. He composed Harry and Tonto, Next Stop Greenwich Village, and most famously the Rocky theme for Rocky. On the show, we've heard his work in Gloria, Private Benjamin, and The Formula, and he's back later this year for Carbon Copy and Neighbors. Cinematographer Jerry Fisher was the DP on Spies, Juggernaut, and the 77 Dr. Moreau, we've seen his work on Wise Blood, The Ninth Configuration, and Wolfen. Later he lights Yellowbeard, Highlander, Black Rainbow, and Exorcist 3. Editor Roberto Silvi also edited Wiseblood, Ninth Configuration, Piranha 2, Leviathan, and Tombstone. Sylvester Stallone plays Captain Robert Hatch. The character's name is a bit on the nose. If you ask me, Escape Hatch, come on. He lost 40 pounds for this role because he didn't think a prisoner of a war should look like Rocky. Stallone admits to knowing nothing about soccer and not really caring for the script, but agreed to do it for the chance to work with John Huston. He's Rocky, he's Rambo, he's Tango, I think. <laughs> he also recently reunited with Cash, though they share no scenes, in James Gunn's Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. He's the linchpin of the Expendables franchise, and we saw his work earlier this season in The Nighthawks, or just Nighthawks. He also has screenwriting credits on a significant percentage of his own movies, and he's directed A Bunch of the Rockies, One of the Rambos, and An Expendables. He also plays Carter in Get Carter, 2000. Michael Caine was Captain John Colby. He also plays Carter in (laughs) Get Carter, but the 1971 version, and he makes a cameo in the Stallone version, or he plays a supporting role. I don't know if it's a cameo. He worked with director Houston earlier in The Man Who Would Be King. He only agreed to do this film for the chance to work alongside Pele. <laughs> That's all Michael <laughs> King cared about. Alfie and Alfie. He's also Alfie in the Nolan Batman trilogy, if you know him well enough. He's in two movies with footage reused in MacGyver episodes, Funeral in Berlin for the Coffin Jetski opening gambit, and The Italian Job, reused for a big chunk of season one episode three, Thief of Budapest. He's Captain in Beyond the Poseidon Adventure, he's Hoagie in Jaws 4, he's Scrooge in The Muppet Christmas Carol, and we've seen him so far in The Island, Dress to Kill and The Hand. Pele played Corporal Luis Fernandez. He's considered by many to be the greatest footballer of all time. He began playing for the Brazilian national team at the age of sixteen. The International Olympic Committee named him the Athlete of the Century, but they didn't specify which century. Probably the one he played in. <laughs> He's possibly the only player with three World Cup wins.
4: I'd like to think he's the best player of the 1500s.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, he had to be, right? Those right? people were very small. <laughs> he's the only player with three World Cup wins, 1958, 1962, and 1970, unless somebody's won one since I wrote that down. Bobby Moore played Terry Brady. He won the World's Cup with England in 1966, England's first and only win. He died fairly young of cancer, and the Bobby Moore Cancer Research Fund was established in his memory. Max von Sydow played Major Carl von Steiner. He began his career working with Swedish director Ingmar Bergman in films like The Seventh Seal, Wild Strawberries, and The Virgin Spring. His career in American film began largely as Father Marin in The Exorcist, and then as Jobert in Three Days of the Condor. After this, he's King Osric in Conan the Barbarian. Brewmeister Smith in Strange Brew, Blofeld in Never Say Never Again, an uncredited role in The Ice Pirates, Dr. Kynes in Lynch's Dune, the voice of Vigo the Carpathian in Ghostbusters 2, he reunites with Stallone as Judge Fargo in Judge Dredd, and he's Papanow in The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, Lor Santeca in The Force Awakens, and the last big thing he did was an appearance as the Three-Eyed Raven on Game of Thrones, and he passed away in March of 2020. George Mickle played Commandant, that's the guy who goes up and finds the big balloon head on the floor. Yeah. He was Lieutenant Dietrich in The Great Escape, and Sessler in Guns of Navarone. We saw him earlier this season as the captain of the Ehrenfels in Seawolves. Jurgen Anderson played Propaganda Civilian. He was an engineer in Force Ten from Navarone. He's Kleist in The Boys from Brazil and the first officer in the Seawolves. Amado played Andre. He was Doctor Ahmed in Spy Game and Dr. Amar in Rules of Engagement. Jean-Francois Stevenon played Claude. He was the Frenchman in Jim Jarmouche's The Limits of Control. Jack Lenoir played Boucher in The Dogs of War earlier this season. Tim pigott Smith played Rose. Do you guys recall the last time we dealt with a pigott Smith? Kind of? Almost? No. Slightly kind of-ish? Frogs! Sam Elliott's character was named pickett Smith.
2: Ah. Uh, okay. <laughs> Smith. What, just Smith?
1: Pickett, Smith. Earlier this season, he was Thallo in Clash of the Titans, he's Ben in Remains of the Day, a minister in Gangs of New York, Pegasus in Johnny English, Omen Reader in Alexander, Creedy in V for Vendetta, and the Foreign Secretary in Quantum of Solace. Julian Curry played Sherlock, he was Dr. Vargas in Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow. Clive Marison played the Forger. He was Major Laniev in Firefox. Maurice Rove's played Colonel Edmund Monroe in Last of the Mohicans and Miller in Judge Dredd. Earlier this season, he was credited as first victim in Outland, even though I'm fairly certain the first victim was John Ratzenberger. Michael Cochran played Farrell. He's credited as Cold Fusion Broker in The Saint. Daniel Massey played Colonel Waldron. He was Dr. Harry Blythe in The Cat and the Canary and Noel Coward in star last season he was credited as foppish man in bad timing anton differing played the commentator he's colonel kramer in where eagles dare and he's gernheim in son of hitler which we discussed earlier features uh what's his name harold uh, bud court as the son of hitler Uh, i need to check that movie out still As soon as he starts talking during the game, I thought I recognized his voice, specifically as the helicopter newsman at the end of Jerry Lewis's Hardly Working, inexplicably named Michael Jackson, but Differing has no credits in that film. Here's the commentator.
3: So a hearty welcome to all our listeners in England. There are just a few minutes to go before the kickoff of this historic match. This great crowd of about 50,000 really has something to look forward to during the next 90 minutes.
1: And here's Michael Jackson from Hardly Working.
3: This is Michael Jackson, your in flight reporter, bringing you up to date news on the spot from Chopper One. We immediately
1: rushed to this crazy site. Though, according to IMDb trivia, Anton Differing was dubbed in the film, and I'll bet dollars to donuts they used the same guy from Hardly Working. Nautic von Horn is uncredited, so I don't know who he played here. He's the writer director of Avatar 2, but not the first Avatar 2 you'd think of, nor the second. <laughs> <laughs> Those are all the credits I have for this one. I think that's everything for Victory, aka Escape to Victory. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Letterboxd, where as I said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We also have a Discord. You can join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at VintageVideoPodcast.com Discord. And if you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. What's that sound? That's right, it's a new patron, Mark Plant. As a $5 patron of the show, he now has access to 28 full-size 70s reviews and 34 minisodes from 1980. Thanks so much, Planty, for making the show possible.
4: What? I don't believe it. It's a plant.
1: He's a plant. (laughs) He's a
2: plant? Yep.
1: (laughs) Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Winter of Our Dreams, which IMDb describes like so. When a womanizing bookshop owner hears about the suicide of his former girlfriend, he tries to find out more and meets her friend, a prostitute. They hook up, but when she finds her friend's diary, she discovers she's repeating her mistakes. A lot of pronouns in this sentence, (laughs) not necessarily attached to specific characters. We leave you now with the trailer for Winter of Our Dreams.
3: She worked the streets. And at first he was just a client. But he became something more. Tell me about you. Who were you? Rob McGregor. Did you ever ask me my name? Lou. The way he is. He was different. He didn't judge her like the others. She couldn't work him out. I didn't know you were married. You didn't ask. Why didn't you tell me on the phone? Just because
0: I'm married doesn't mean I can't have visitors.
3: Well, it's pretty late. Judy Davis is Lou, caught between two worlds, living on a tightrope.
0: And I'm not as experienced as you are. You would know the difference who you're with, would you? All those faces. It'd just be one big blur.
3: (laughs) Brian Brown is Rob. For him, she was a link with a past he'd almost forgotten. You told me it was going to be about Lisa. Look, I hadn't seen her for 10 years. She really loved you, you know? No, she didn't. For both of them, life had become a habit until they met. Maybe you could uh, come out like that. You want to be red. Oh, wouldn't she then? Brian Brown and Judy Davis combine their talents in an outstanding new film, Winter of Our Dreams.
2: Okay Jason, test of our friendship, which is better, Van Halen or Van Hagar? Man, honestly, I think Van Hagar has better music. Here. Oh, no. No, no, no. It's Van Halen, you're wrong. <laughs> what about <laughs> Michael Jackson's bad album versus Michael Jackson's Thriller album? Thriller, obviously. Bestseller ever. No, no. See, people trick themselves into believing <laughs> that it's actually bad. <laughs> okay, Trading Places versus Coming to America. Trading Places is the funnier movie out of this, still. No, Coming to America is the funniest movie of all time. <laughs> <laughs> so, if you find yourself backing one of us or the other of us, you need to be listening to the Shirley You Can't Be Serious podcast. That's right. We have a friendly discussion, Dee and I are best buddies, and we take a deep dive and look at the the behind-the-scenes stuff, the history, and the fun facts of all these wonderful movies and music from our youth. It's really just an opportunity for us to geek out about the things that we really loved growing up. For example, do you know the actor that was in Star Wars, Batman 89, and Raiders of the Lost Ark? Yeah, sure, it's Harrison Ford. Harrison Ford wasn't in Batman. Oh, yeah, Billy D. Williams. Billy D. Williams was not in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Who was it? Well, you've got to tune in to the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast when we discuss Raiders of the Lost Ark vs. Back to the Future to find out the answer.